right, my friends, welcome back to the second hour of the At Your Service program tonight. A little bit of a different voice greeting you. Welcome. My name is Dave Simons. Yeah, the guy who has been hosting the Dollars and Cents show off and on for 26 years now. Um, But occasionally they do let me out of my pen to be able to play with the big boys, which uh, that would be tonight. So uh, thank you very much to... uh, to all of you for tuning into Camo X tonight and specifically this show. And uh, I just love uh, doing this because I get to kind of spread the wings a little bit and not just talk about financial and market related issues. In fact, I will do that on the next Dollars and Cents show, which is not this Sunday, but the following Sunday, which is the 16th. Uh, For those of you who get my weekly commentary, I will be reminding you of that. So the next Dollars and Cents show is Sunday, the 16th, usual time from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, I am going to start this second and final hour of At Your Service with a little bit of of an observation that is market-related, but also somewhat political-related. And I always have to try to be careful about doing that because in this very divided era in which we find ourselves people hear what they want to hear so it's important to me that when i get into something that i know is political but the facts are the facts and i'm sorry if you're on the left and this particular issue bothers you or if you're on the right and what i'm about to say also upsets you i can't help you with that i'm sorry if the facts are the facts so what i do try to to do is is give a couple of different stories where everyone's mad at me so i guess i'm a little bit of an equal opportunity antagonist that is not my intention by the way i'm actually just a really nice lovable person But again, in this world in which we live and in this country in particular, people hear what they want to hear. So I could look out and go, man, it's a beautiful day, that blue sky. Oh, blue, you big Libby Dem, you big Dem, commie. Uh, No, just pointing out the sky is blue. Yeah, blue is in Democrat liberal. Go back to where you came from. Like, oh, okay. The next day could be a wonderful sunset, fiery red. Oh, red, huh? You big fascist. What, did you storm the Capitol on January 6th? No, no, it's a beautiful sunset. It's red. I'm barely exaggerating, right? That's where we are today. So with that said, I love data. It's what I do for a living. I love history. We can all learn from history, but in particular, in what I do for a living in the financial world, There are patterns that develop when it comes to sort of divining where markets may be heading, stock market, bond market, gold, commodities, all that. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But if you've been around the block for uh, in this business, as I have for a few decades, and then you go back and look at history, you do see patterns develop. And one of the things that uh, crossed my desk this week, I just find fascinating. It is the return of the U.S. stock market as measured by the S&P 500. In the first year of a four-year presidential term. So it doesn't matter if the president is there for a couple of terms or in FDR's case, you know, nearly four full terms or one term or uh, tragically someone like Kennedy who didn't even get to serve his full four-year term, of course, or Gerald Ford, of course, didn't either. No, we just look at the first year of a four-year cycle. And we want to see what the stock market has done that year. And we went all the way back to uh, Herbert Hoover. 
Of course, he won in 1928. In his first year, 29, yeah, can we say it didn't go very well from a market standpoint? The market fell 16.8% and then only got worse from there. The next first year of a four-year term happened to be the aforementioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And his first year was a year that may stand the test of time in terms of market performance in the first year of a four-year cycle. In 1933, the calendar year of FDR's first year, the stock market in the U.S. was up 72.9%. You heard that right, 72.9%. Now, it still didn't get back to where it was at the peak in early 1929 because the market had crashed nearly 90%, and 72% doesn't even get you close to the top of that. And then we go all the way down to the one that just ended in 2021 when the S&P 500 just had a terrific year up 26.9%. That's without dividends, by the way. That's just the index itself, 26.9. So we've had 24 first years dating back to 1929. Of the four years, that's typically the worst, although we would still take it. The overall median, the average, is 6.9%. So let's call it 7%. If someone could guarantee you 7% a year for the rest of your life, I think most people would stand in that line and say, sign me up. Well, that's been the average 24 times, but the numbers have been all over the place. There's never been a year where the, the market was up 7% that year, all over the place. But here's where we add politics, because I know a lot of you are thinking right now, huh, I wonder if Democrats or Republicans did better. Not for the, not for the full four-year terms. Those are different numbers, but just in the first year. The disparity is actually huge, unbelievably large between Republicans and Democrats in the first year. The gap narrowed in the second year, which I'll get to, but it still favored one party. But it's this first year that really opened my eyes. I knew there was a gap, but not until I did research in just the last few days looking at just the first years and then adding it all up and looking at the average that I realized the disparity is even larger than what I always kind of intuitively known, had known. But you're going to have to wait around through this first commercial break, folks. That's what we call a tease in the media business. And I will let you know those numbers, not just for the first year, uh, but also importantly, because now we're entering President Biden's second year? Or what does history tell us about the second year of a four-year cycle? All that and more when we come back, including going on the other side of the political aisle and favoring the other party, because I'm just that kind of a fair guy. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste because you know the bigger the fight 
better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Trick responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. St. Louis, welcome back at your service on KMOX. Dave Simons, the guest host tonight. So uh, set this story up here in the first part of this hour. And uh, we're really combining market news with politics by going back and looking at the returns of the U.S. stock market in the first year of every four-year presidential cycle, starting with 1929, Herbert Hoover Republican first year, and concluding with the one that just ended, Joseph R. Biden, Democrat, first year. Hoover's first year, down 16.8. Biden's first year that just finished, up 26.9, and all the ones in between. So a total of 24 first years, with an average return right about 7%. Lower than historically average, but I still think, okay, that's still pretty good. By the way, in case you're wanting to know, the third year of a presidential cycle historically, average-wise, is the best. But when you break it down to parties, boy, is there a big difference in that first year. So of the 24 times, there have been 11 Republicans and 13 Democrats first years. 11 and 13. Okay, pretty close to even, right? But... A, a, a majority of those wins have been on the Democrat side. In fact, the Democrat average for a first year is 14.2%, well ahead of the overall average dating back to 1929. This is what surprised me, frankly. I knew there was a gap, but not to this degree. The Republican average is actually negative slightly a negative 1.2% average, 14.2 for Democrats. Really, you can lay it at the feet of just a couple of uh, years where it really pushed the Republicans down. I already talked about Herbert Hoover, his first year being down about 17%. Both of Richard Nixon's first years of his two four-year cycles were down. 1969, down 98 and even worse, in 1973, down at even 18%. You had Ronald Reagan. His first year of his first term was down 8.8. Now, it went straight up pretty much after that. Uh, and then George Bush, George W. Bush, the kid Bush. 2001, we know well, for all the wrong reasons, but that year was down 14.5. So that really has skewered the numbers. By the way, the Democratic side would be even better if not for the worst 
first year ever, which was FDR, in his second term, 1937, down 40%. Just as an aside, a lot of people don't realize this. They think of the 1930s as this decade where the market did nothing but go down, and that's actually not true. The market went down from 1929 to 1932 and was down about 88%, 89%. Worst period in the history of the U.S. stock market. But then it went on an unbelievable return up when FDR first took over in his uh, first term. It didn't make back up all the, the losses by any means, but it was heading in that direction. And we had a major bull market from 1933 into the early part of 1937. Huge bull market. People don't realize that. But then it all fell off the table again. In 1937, the market was down 40.1% under FDR's watch. His third term, the first year, 1941, the market was down 17%. So two of the Democrat declines, and they only had four. Two of the four are at FDR. The other two were gains, and they were huge gains. 72.9%, I just mentioned that in 1933, and then the 1945, the market was up 29.2. Now, those of you who know your American history know that FDR was not the president for even half that year, as he died in the spring of 1945, and our own Harry Truman took over. And by the way, when he won re-election, surprisingly to many, his first full year of his actual real first four-year term, 1949, the market was up 8.5%. So there, the Democrats have a clear advantage. Now, for the second year, I won't spend as much time on it, but adding up all the numbers, we have 23 examples, of course, not 24 yet. Of the 23, the average goes from the first year of 7.2 up to 8.2, still slightly below the all-time average, the, the, the average of every year. So the first two years are a little bit below, the third and fourth years are above. Now, the gap closes but still favors the Democrats in the second year. Remember the first year, Democrat average was a very impressive 14.2%. The second year, under a Democrat, second year of a four-year presidential cycle, 9.6. Still very strong. The Republicans really improved from that 1.2 on the negative up to a 6.7. But still, my friends, nearly a three percentage point gap. That changes in the third and fourth years. A year from now, maybe we'll get to that. This is just looking at the first couple of years. Now, for those of you who are on the right and who are angry right now, I can't believe you're even going there. Okay, bear with me. I'm about to now go to a completely different story to even this all out. Yes, equal opportunity antagonist. So let's bring this today. And I started this show off at nine o'clock talking about COVID and how the fact is we just hit a million new cases uh, on Monday, yesterday, and a number that we could not have even thought possible a year ago. And especially that we'd hit the million cases a year later. You talk about COVID fatigue. I think all of us would have just decided to pull a Rip Van Winkle and go to sleep for a couple of decades if we knew what we were actually going to get hit with in the early part of 2022, but here we are. Well, we know as part of this pandemic, something very interesting and uh, unprecedented has occurred. 
with how we all live as Americans, and that is the great migration that's been occurring. As people have learned that they can work from home and they work for companies and employers and bosses, perhaps, who have allowed them to do that, that's not most Americans, but many, they have decided, you know what, I don't need to live in that high rise in New York City or Chicago or whatever, where uh, crime is a little bit more rampant, uh, traffic is out of control. Uh, so are, so is the cost of living and the rent that I have to pay. But I've learned that I can move down to Franklin, Tennessee or outside of Austin, Texas, or any of these other new hotspots, Boise, Idaho, uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, all these new hotspots, cost of living is a lot lower and, and just the quality of living in, so, in, in many cases is better. And now they can keep their jobs and move. And that's what we've seen. So I just came across this data that shows the migration that has occurred the last couple of years. And it lists all 50 states in order of net inflows of citizens to net outflows. I don't think that any of you should be too surprised of what you're about to hear, but there are a couple of little new subtleties to add to this little bit. So the state with the largest inflow net. So they look at all the people who have moved in, all the people who have moved out, they net the number, and that is Florida. A net new number of Floridians, 220,890 people. That's by far the largest. Number two is Texas, 170,000. So 50 below Florida. And then it really drops off. Arizona is third at 93,000. So Florida and Texas got a huge chunk of new citizens moving to their states the last couple of years. Arizona, then in order, North Carolina, South Carolina, there's your top five. Then Tennessee, Georgia, Idaho, Utah, down to number 15. And the reason I went to 15 is because it's a state that I think some of you have heard about. It's called Missouri. That was a surprise, I have to admit. I didn't know if we had net outflows or inflows. To be honest, I thought, eh, maybe we'll have some slight outflows, not much. Uh, we actually had some inflows, net inflow of 14,260. You may not think that's much, but that's 15th best out of the 50 states. Actually, uh, they're including D.C. in this, so we have 51 entries here. 15th, state of Missouri. That's awesome. Now, on the outflow. Should it surprise anyone that California is number one? Net outflow of California citizens, 367,000 the last couple of years during this pandemic. A close number two, the state of New York, 352,000. Then there's a big drop off at number three. You might have heard of this state. It's called Illinois. 122,000. So those are the three states with more than 100,000 that's got the six figures. California and New York, way up there above 350,000 net outflow. Illinois, big drop down to third, but still 122,000. And then a huge drop after that. Massachusetts comes in at number four, 46,000. Interestingly, I would not have guessed this. Louisiana's number five. The only thing I can think of is after this increase of hurricanes, I mean, Katrina was one thing back in 04, and then there seemed to be a couple more, and then it stopped for a while. But now there's been an increase again. A lot of issues down there. I don't know. Have people finally said, I'm not going back? I, I, that, that's, that's the only thing I can think of. And then New Jersey, there's D.C., Maryland. 
I went down to 15 again, all the way down to Mississippi, the 15th um, most outflow. So here's the political part to even things out. I just told a story about market returns and how it is very one-sided, particularly in the first year, to the Democrats. And that's just data. I'm not trying to prove a point here. Those are facts. And that's where I live. Factual data. This one, again, factual data, just to even the score, favors red states, not even close. I just mentioned most of the 15 states of the largest inflow of new citizens. 12 of the 15 have Republican majorities, so-called red states, 12 of the 15. Now, there used to be an argument, well, you know, you're going from north to south, so it's weather. Yeah, to some degree it could be, but that doesn't explain Idaho or Utah or Nevada, which are in your top 10. Montana is 13th. Maine, which is officially a red state, even though it's in New England, is 14th. Missouri, as I mentioned, is 15th. These are not southern, great beach-oriented states, my friends. On the other side, biggest outflows. 11 of the top 12 states are blue. 11 of 12. Now, as I looked at this and I thought, do I really want to go there because people are going to get all upset? I'm just like, I, I maybe instead of doing this as Republican versus Democrat, maybe there's another way to look at it, which is the way I would look at it in my profession. And that is not from a political standpoint, because that's not what I do for a living, but from an economic standpoint, right? From a cost of living standpoint, with taxes, regulations. This has gotten so out of hand with some of these states, like in California. I just read somewhere that they highlighted in a newspaper, one particular guy in California. You know, all he wanted to do was open an ice cream shop, which is my kind of shop, by the way. That's my... Uh, because I don't drink at all, I do have a vice, and it's called ice cream. So that's where I get my sugar. I already had some tonight, by the way. Guy wants to open an ice cream shop in San Francisco. He spent $200,000 in permits, uh, fees, awning regulations, and he's no closer to opening than he was at the beginning, and he's already in for $200,000. I'm sorry, folks. Is there any reason why some people say, I'm not doing this anymore? I'm going to find a state that's a little bit more business friendly. So I know people are going to make the connection. Well, Dave, you're, I know it, it's fine if you don't want to get into the politics of this and say taxes and regulations, but let's be honest, that is political. One party favors this and one party favors that. And that's the way it is. But I'll end there by just, again, pointing out equal opportunity antagonist. Hopefully I've made both sides happy in one regard. And maybe you're mad at me in the other regard. But at least I've tried to be fair and even. All right. Let's leave that for a second. I, if you're running a business, there is a way to overcome adversity and every business owner is going to be faced with it, especially in the early days. There are some high profile cases. I learned about one of these in business school, by the way, when I was at Mizzou 
um, in one of my, uh, was it an economics class or something or business related class? I don't recall. Um, I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 this was, no, this happened after I was out of Mizzou, the Johnson and Johnson thing. I'm trying to remember. Maybe I learned that in some other study, but when they had the Tylenol issue where somebody was uh, getting in there and, and, and tainting the Tylenol that was killing people and they finally busted the guy, uh, fortunately, and then Tylenol did all the right things and they just took everything off the shelves at great cost to that firm. And they came out and they apologized, even though it really wasn't their fault. But they then came out with the, what we now know are the, uh, the, the, the caps where you have to, <laughs> even for adults can sometimes be very, very difficult to open these childproof caps that people can't break into as easily. They did all the right things. And that is a, a case study in business schools of how they did it. But then there's the case of people like at Peloton. I don't really want to take Peloton to task as a firm because I'm such a fitness nut. And I love the fact that people who may not have been really into it before have found a way to actually exercise and they've fallen in love with it. And that's great for this country. It really is. But this is more of an exercise that I want to describe in, in really how to be open and how to have transparency. Because if you're not, not only will your reputation suffer, but your shareholders will suffer the most. I'll explain what Peloton's issues have been when we come back. You're listening to Camo X. My name is Dave Simons, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. It is 1036, 1036. Yeah, I'm on the East Coast here. Uh, my, my brain is. It's 936 in St. Louis. It's 1036, oh, for those of you on the East Coast listening. Um, so I think one of the easiest calls to make for any investor starting in 2021, so I'm going back a year, looking ahead, would be to be very wary of the so-called stay-at-home stocks. Those companies and their stocks that did extremely well and led the market in 2020 as people were forced to stay home. And I'm not I'm not going to give any buy, sell, hold recommendations. I'm just pointing out the, the facts. When you look at things and you say, okay, here we are a year later, you know, at some point people are going to want to live again, even if COVID is still out there, there's going to be that COVID fatigue. And what worked really well in 2020 may not be the hot stocks of 2021. That was an easy call to make because a lot of those businesses basically took, geez, I don't know, five to 10 years of future earnings and brought them all back into one year. There is no possible way, no matter how well managed the company was, that some of these companies could sustain that kind of growth once we return to some sense of normalcy. To me, that was a no-brainer call. So what you want in one of those companies is where management recognizes that. They say, look, we're going to try to take as much advantage of this as we can. I know that we can't sustain that growth, but we now have a brand name that grew during the pandemic. And the key for us is to try to keep those current customers loyal. And even though our growth rate is going to fall, to still bring in some new people from time to time. Let's see if we can do that. So with that, here's a case study of how not to do things. And that is Peloton. Not a knock against the product itself. I, I don't use it, but I know many people do. 
and they just absolutely love it and are really into it. And I applaud that as a fitness freak myself. So Peloton, of course, a year ago, they were racing to keep up with demand, right? All the orders, revenue, share price were soaring. In fact, it was nearly a year ago on January 13th where the stock hit an all-time high of $171. But then you just knew that once people started to get out, that orders were going to start to flow, not according to management. Their view was that there was a paradigm shift that was forever going to be here in this country and that people were going to continue to favor home workouts even once the pandemic subsided. That went against their own internal research, which, by the way, was pointed out by a really good analyst at Raymond James by the name of Aaron Kessler. And he said, look, your, your own consumer surveys show the opposite. So in February, Kessler downgraded Peloton stock. Remember, this is just weeks after it hit an all-time high. And he had the guts to downgrade it. Many, most analysts will not do that. Here's one guy who did. And his quote was, it was a false narrative. People did want to return to the gym. And they have. But that wasn't the only thing. This past August... Peloton lowered the price of its stationary bike by 20%. Now, that's a good business decision. You're seeing sales slow. You want to try to, and, and you've got a fairly expensive product. So to stave off that big slowdown as people are getting back out and going to gyms, you know what? We're going to lower our price. And be honest with the reasons why. Well, they weren't. The CEO, John Foley, said, no, nah, it doesn't reflect weaker sales. No. The move is aimed at staving off competition and, and this is his quote, democratizing access to this great fitness. What? So analysts are looking at some of these verbal blunders and going, okay, what's really good? We have Baghdad Bob here. What's going on? And it didn't end there. Just a few months ago, in October, Peloton announced a $1 billion stock offering. Companies do that all the time for whatever reason, and uh, to expand, pay down debt, whatever. Some companies do it because they need the cash. They need the capital. And a company like Peloton had no problem issuing a billion dollars in new stock, but that is going to water down your stock. It will dilute it. But according to a spokeswoman for the company, quote, we did not need to raise capital. We just chose to. So as these things are building up, I'm like, uh, okay. And, and, and this one is, here's this, I'll give you one more example. This is kind of a strange one to me. I think a lot of you know this story. There was a marketing plug that backfired on them. It was HBO Sex in the City. It's kind of a reboot. And the producers of Sex in the City went to Peloton and said, hey, we'd like to use one of your bikes on our show. We're going to promote it. We're going to show it. Now, if you know what you're doing as a company, you say, okay, what are you going to do? We think this is great. Thank you. But can, we'd like to see the script. How are you going to use it? Apparently, they didn't do that. They just said, oh, okay, great. Here's the bike. And as you may know the story, they had somebody die on it in the show. Somebody died riding a bike on Peloton. Now, here's where I will give Peloton credit. They had fun at their own expense. And they went out and they did an ad that made kind of a, a fun 
of the Sex of the City debacle. Here's what problem. And again, I kind of feel sorry in a way to Peloton on this because this is something they probably could not have seen. But it just shows that their the issues that they've had mostly has been their own doing, but not all. It's just been a really bad year for them. Chris Noth was in that ad that poked fun at the Sex of the City show. Chris Noth is the guy who has been accused of sexual assault here lately by a number of women. So they quickly had to drop that ad. I mean, it's been a comedy of errors. Some of it's most of it's self-inflicted. In that case, not necessarily so. So here's Peloton stock. Remember what I said? The all-time high a year ago? 17109 to be exact. It closed today at a 52-week low, $33.82. An 80% drop. Folks, that's not just having lower sales because the people are back out of the gyms. That is also a series of missteps that has caused the analyst community to go, uh, what are we dealing with here at management? That's a combination of both. By the way, the company went public in September of 2019 at $29. Less than two years later, uh, actually less than a year and a half later, it had gone from 29 to 171. What did I say about companies that took years of future earnings because of the lockdown, those who benefited from it, and brought it into one year? So to me, it was inevitable that these stay-at-home stocks were going to decline. To me, it was one of the easiest calls to make as an investor of where, not necessarily where to be, but where not to be. But, but most of them, the stay-at-home stocks, have not fallen 80%. This was also some... Um, just self-induced mistakes. And I think this can also be used in business schools. Be open and honest with investors in the analyst community. Give full disclosures on everything. And when you've messed up, also own it. They certainly have not. There is one guy who has done very, very well over the years. You might have heard of his name. He goes by the name of Warren Buffett. Now, a lot of folks feel like, oh, because he's in his late 80s and his partner, Charlie Munger, is like 96 years old, that they've they've just lost it. Okay, so they haven't returned exactly what the S&P has in the last decade or so, but they're still doing very well. And one pick in particular has put them back in the spotlight for all the right reasons. So I just gave the story of one company and management that's done it all wrong in the past year. Well, let me highlight one well-known company and the guy behind it, who we all know, who's really been doing it right here in just the last couple of years. When we come back with that, your service here on KMOX after this. It's been a blast visiting with you on this uh, Tuesday night. It's 1040. I did it again. See, folks, I was on the East Coast and my phone has not switched back for some reason. I just need to reboot it. But it, it, I look at it and it's, um, uh, yeah, just turned 1050, even though we know it's 950 here in St. Louis. Okay, whatever. I need to actually look at clocks, not my phone. So um, Warren Buffett. 
he's got he's had this aversion to tech stocks. It's been well documented. He he admits I don't understand how they work. I don't understand really the fundamentals of it. Uh, I know basic companies and industrials, and that's kind of my thing. Financials, all that good stuff. Tech stocks kind of have their own reporting methods. Yeah, high PEs. I'm a low PE value guy. I don't really get it. Well, thankfully, he's got a couple of younger guys on his team, and they'll eventually take over for him and Munger. And in particular, their names are Todd, uh, Todd Combs and Ted Wetzler. These guys were kind of in Buffett's ear a few years ago talking about Apple. So Buffett made up friendship with Tim Cook, the CEO, and actually started to come around to the idea, hey, you know what? This company is something that I could get behind. So Buffett and Berkshire started buying Apple stock back in 2016. And by mid-18, Berkshire Hathaway had accumulated 5% ownership of Apple. You guys know that? It's now at about uh, close to 6%, actually. So Berkshire Hathaway owns a big chunk chunk of this company. They're $36 billion. That's how much they actually put into Apple from 2016 to mid-18. Berkshire Hathaway invested $36 billion. As of yesterday, it's worth $160 billion. My friends, that's not $36 billion turn to 160 billion over 10 years, 20 years. No, no, that's three to five years. That's more than a four bagger. <laughs> so leave it to Warren Buffett. When he finally decides to invest in a kind of a pure tech play, he does it with the stock that leads that entire industry the last number of years. And if you heard the news briefly today, I don't think it closed there, but it did touch. Apple became a $3 trillion company. That's a T. That's $3 trillion. And I'll be really honest with you. Back in, oh, gosh, when did they first become a $1 trillion company? It wasn't that long ago. It might have been just five years ago. And I was talking to my uh, partner. It, uh, it was Simon's Cordes. That would be Tom Cordes. And we both agreed Man, how does a $1 trillion company, they were the first company, by the way, to go to $1 trillion market capitalization. And I said, how, does, how do you go from $1 trillion to $2 trillion? I mean, will it take a generation? It, will they even get there? And we both agreed, yeah, it's going to be a long time, even if they get it within our careers. It's one thing to go from $10 million to $20 million, then to $50 million, then $100 million. You start as a micro cap. Then you go to a small cap, mid cap, large cap, mega cap, and then all of a sudden you're the world's largest company. But one trillion, first company ever to do it. How do you go to two trillion? Five years later, they're three trillion, and now I don't question it anymore. I just don't. And there are now, by the way, five companies in this country that are trillion dollar market cap because the bull market has done that. Here's the thing that really jumped out at me about this. This is the part that's most incredible to me. Beside, and that's incredible enough, right? $36 billion to $160 billion. It's the dividends. Don't think for a second that Warren Buffett was going to make his first pure tech play with a company that paid no dividends, even though he's not necessarily a dividend guy. He's not. But I think he wanted the safety of it. I really do. That's just my own personal opinion. 
Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay dividends. Most of the companies, though, that he invests in, Warren Buffett through Berkshire, they do pay dividends. So he looked at Apple, one of the big, large mega tech stocks that pays a dividend. Berkshire now enjoys regular dividends of $775 million. Nearly a billion dollars in free cash flow of the stake of Apple. There's no indication, by the way, that Berkshire is going to be lightening up or selling any Apple. And usually he's a guy that doesn't mind taking money off the table, especially when things get a little overvalued. Who knows? He could start. He could be doing that right now and he doesn't have to report it right away. Um, but he will eventually as a 5% uh, stakeholder in that particular company. But I think that he's probably going to hold on to like forever, which let's be honest, is not probably a long time since he's already in his early nineties and his partner is 96. But I just thought that's a great story because so many people have given up on Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. And every once in a while, he'll come out and surprise you a personal story. And it's one of those things. It's the big fish that got away. Although this still pains me. I don't even like to look at the price of Berkshire Hathaway. It's a stock. The main share, the A share has never split. This stock, this company has been around for 60 years. It's never split. I don't think it's been publicly traded that long. Um, back in the mid nineties, I had some extra cash on hand. I could have bought Berkshire Hathaway. I think it was around $11,000 a share. Now, back then, you're talking 25 years ago plus, I didn't have a, a ton of money just to throw it around on one stock, particularly one share of a stock. I had it in this particular case, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. At $11,000 a share in 1996, the stock closed today at $465,725 per share, folks. Look that up. Berkshire Hathaway closed today at $465,725. Do you think I kicked myself for not putting $11,000 into that back in 1995, 96? You can't win them all, folks. Hey, it's been a great joy visiting with all of you. Dollars and cents in a couple of Sundays.